0: Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. That's tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: My lecture is really on the Catholic perspective of inspiration and biblical authorship, Uh, why we think that the Bible is reliable in communicating truth. What does it mean that the Bible communicates truth? These are the types of questions that I hope will become a a bit clearer in the course of this lecture. Um, As an opening anecdote, um, back when there were these things called bookstores, uh, where you could go and buy physical books, there were a whole uh, like basically two to three rows dedicated to Bibles and biblical studies and religion. So you could go to a Barnes and Noble, for example, and you could uh, probably count out about 15 different translations into English of the biblical text. Um, You could have study Bibles that had supplementary notes and maps. Um, There were all different options that you could have. And it became, at least in in my uh, experience growing up and studying the Bible, it became a kind of uh, commonplace to have your Bible. So you would have an individual book that you would take notes in, that you would read again and again and again, Um, and it was something uh, of a phenomenon that... Um, lent itself, really, to thinking about the Bible as something that you could own a copy of. Uh, I bring this up because it was common, at least for me, when I began to read and study the Bible, to think about this as something that I was doing on my own. That I have my own Bible, that I read it by myself and study it by myself. But... The Catholic perspective on what it means to have the Bible, what it means to read and study the Bible, is something that is much more communal-oriented. So what I hope will become clear in the course of this lecture is why that's the case. In considering how the Bible originated from God, how the Bible was received by human beings, that this is fundamentally a a communal type of experience of reading a set of common texts together, interpreting a set of texts in a tradition. So it's much more ecclesially focused in the Catholic tradition and perspective, that it's not an individualistic thing, but something that we do in common. So with that opening, uh, anecdote in place, I would like to begin by considering one of the most important teachings about the Bible in the Catholic tradition. It's this document called the Word of God from the Second Vatican Council, De Verbum. All right, so this Second Vatican Council, as you might know, was an important council of teaching authority in the life of the Catholic Church. It is the place where we have the most developed teaching on the sacred scripture, what the Bible is. And in that document, it's important to recognize that it begins with revelation. It begins by describing what it means that God chose to reveal himself to human beings. So there are a couple of quotes that are really nice that I'd like to read to begin. The first is from the second paragraph of this document. It says that in his goodness and wisdom, God chose to reveal himself and to make known to us the hidden purpose of his will, by which, through Christ, the Word made flesh, human beings might in the Holy Spirit have access to the Father and come to share in the divine nature. Through God's revelation therefore the invisible God out of the abundance of his love speaks to human beings as friends and lives among them so that they may invite and take them so that he may invite and take them into fellowship with himself So the purpose of revelation God revealing himself to human beings is to draw human beings into his own life It is for union, for relationship. This is where the document on the Bible, on Scripture begins. It's important to take note of that. This isn't a a document about a dead letter or a book. It's a document about the way that God wants to be in relationship with human beings. God wants human beings to be in relationship with him for all eternity. Because that's the case, it's God's plan to reveal himself and eventually to give us the gift of a written revelation in the scripture. This is the trajectory of this document. The second text is, that, uh, is from the sixth paragraph, that through divine revelation, God chose, chose to show forth and communicate himself and the eternal decisions of his will regarding the salvation of men. That is to say, he chose to share with them those divine treasures which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. So here we have a revelation or a reference to Revelation in terms of a rather traditional teaching of the church, that human beings have the capacity, have the ability to a limited extent, and only with an admixture of some error, to come to go know God on a natural level. That is to say, if you think of Aristotle, for example, he thinks as a, he's not a Christian, obviously, but he's a philosopher who thinks about the first cause, God as a first cause. He's going through philosophical proofs of the existence of a God. This is the type of natural knowledge that human beings, through their reasoning, can have of God. But God wants us to know him personally and intimately. There are certain truths about God that no matter how many years, how many eons pass, human beings will never be able to know about God unless God chooses to reveal it to them. So this is the context that this document begins with, that the scripture is ultimately a written record of God's revelation, a written record of the truth that God wants human beings to know so that human beings can be in union with God. That's where it begins. The second point that this document uh, proceeds to is the actual consignment to writing the fact that this is a written message of salvation, what this means for us. It considers the context in which the fullness of God's revelation, Jesus Christ, became man and then communicated truth with his preaching, with his deeds, with his miracles, that he was in this personal relationship, particularly with the apostles and the disciples. He communicated truth to them in his and through his personal relationship. But then, after a certain amount of time, these apostles, they were eventually given this gift of inspiration to consign to writing this same message of truth. So we can think about it as a master and apprentice relationship, that Christ taught his disciples as his apostles what this truth of God was, and taught them how to communicate this truth with other people. So we can think about how the apostles really took up the ministry of Christ, working miracles much like he did, and communicating the gospel through their preaching In various lands in order to bring people this saving truth. But they realized after a few decades that this saving truth really ought to be written down because this was a way of ensuring that this saving truth could be communicated to many subsequent generations through centuries and across the sands of time, also that it could be communicated throughout the world, that the text enabled them to spread God's message of salvation farther and more efficiently. This is the basis, then, of the decision to, on a human level, consign to writing this message of salvation. In composing the sacred books, the document says... God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers and abilities, so that with him acting in them and through them, they as true authors consigned to writing everything and only those things which God wanted." So God is using these disciples to consign to writing this message of truth in order to make it possible for more people to come in contact with this message of truth and so be saved. It's important to recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work in both of these movements, both when the apostles go out to preach and when they sit down to write down the message of salvation, the Holy Spirit is at work animating what they are doing. The Holy Spirit oversees their preaching initiatives and he oversees their writing. That is what we call inspiration. It is the Holy Spirit working on the mind and in the heart to produce this written text. The Holy Spirit uses, then, these human beings as instruments. In order to understand this concept, we can have a, 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 it's, it's good for us to have recourse to Thomistic philosophy and an understanding of what instrumental causality is. Because we say that the books of the scripture have both God and human beings as their author, God is the source. God is the originator, the one who brings them into being, most fundamentally. But God also involves human beings in this process of writing down. Because this is the case, we need to understand in what sense God is the author and in what sense the human being is the author. Or that is, how God is using the human being as an instrument, In the course of time in the history and tradition of the church, there were many attempts to explain this relationship. And sometimes there is a comparison of the author to a pen or a brush. That the human being is simply a pen in God's hand. This is inadequate because it doesn't completely honor the dignity of this human person as an instrument of God, using his mind and his heart, his creativity, in order to consign to writing these things which God wanted. So when we say that the human author is an instrument, it's not saying that the human author is an instrument like a hammer is an instrument or a tool, or like a tape recorder is an instrument. The human author is fully engaged in freedom with his mind and heart in recording this message of salvation, consigning it to writing. He is a true author. So how do we understand that? Well, to understand this properly, it's good to remember that for all of us, at every moment, God is continually keeping us in being, and enabling us to do what we do. This is what instrumental causality is in its most broad form. Every one of us is an agent and a secondary cause. When we go to the gym to work out, when we go to the classroom to study, when we drive down the street, all of these things require our mind, require our will. They are human actions. But they would be impossible if God were not, at every moment, enabling them. God is the ultimate first cause. We are secondary causes. But we are secondary causes with freedom, with an intellect, with the ability to act freely. This is what distinguishes us from secondary causes without freedom. That is everything else. So when God enables a rock to be a rock and sit there and fall down a mountain, that's different from God enabling us to act with freedom as human beings. It's in this second sense that the Holy Spirit then is acting upon these particular human beings to consign to writing this saving truth. They are able to act with freedom and with creativity to consign to writing this message of salvation. Thomas, in writing about instrumental causality, says that every instrument, when acting as an instrument, has two different effects, one that pertains to it according to its own nature and another that pertains to it insofar as it is moved by the primary agent and that transcends its own nature. The clearest way to wrap our minds around that quote, I think, is with the example of a bread knife. If you imagine a bread knife sitting on a table, it is sharp, it has a serrated edge, and it has in itself the qualities necessary to be able to cut a piece of bread. But it requires an agent to actually use it. It requires an agent to move it back and forth across the bread if it is actually going to cut the bread. So the effect of a slice of bread, of the bread actually being cut, transcends the knife itself. It's not inherent in the knife, but in the agent using the knife. Just so, the human authors of the scripture have in themselves the qualities necessary to write something, to write a gospel, to write a psalm. But they require an agent that is God to have that effect actually be transcendent for it to actually be, be the word of God consigned to writing in human words. There was a Writing assignment that I did, I I was asked to write a piece for National Catholic Reporter a year ago or so, and I wrote this uh, meditation on the scripture, on the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. I sat down, I brainstormed, I planned it out, and I put down about a, a couple thousand words to be printed in the National Catholic Reporter. When this was put into the paper, though, there were several people who read it that I later encountered, and one of them in particular was this man, a family man, who came up to me after a talk I gave and profusely thanked me for having written this piece on wisdom because he said it helped him to put into perspective God's plan and purpose for him in his life. When I sat down to write that piece, I had no idea who was going to read it. I had no idea what all of the extended effects were going to be. But in God's providential guidance, he used this piece of work to help other people come to know the truth. and That is, in a comparable fashion, a transcendent effect, one that I could never have intended One that I did not really bring about on my own, but only in as much as God used me as an instrument for communicating truth to other people. On an order of magnitude ever greater than that, this is what the hagiographers, the human authors of scripture did in committing to writing the saving truths of God's sacred scripture. Having gone through that, this dual authorship between God as the originator of Scripture and the human instrument that God uses to consign Scripture to writing, we can think about a few implications of this. First of all, because God is the author of Scripture, Scripture is one. There is unity to all of the books. There are 46 Books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. They say a lot of seemingly distant and uh, different things. There are different points of emphases. And yet, there is unity to the message contained throughout all of these. Written between 1000 B.C. and about 100 A.D., there is a unity to the message that is contained throughout all of these books. That is the first ramification of this dual authorship, that God is the author. Secondly, that we have confidence that there is, that these books are inerrant, that the whole of scripture does not contain in any respect error. This is what uh, this document has to say about it. Since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, It follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error, that truth which God wanted to put into the sacred writings for the sake of salvation. This lack of error is to be understood, then, in terms of the way that God communicates truth through these human words to bring us to salvation. There are mistakes in the words of Scripture, What I mean by that is when these things were written down, they had to be copied. They had to be copied a lot. We actually don't have an original copy of any of the books of the Bible. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We have some copies that go all the way back to the first century B.C. of parts of the Bible some parts of the gospel that go back as far as about 50 A.D., but nothing complete. What we have are copies of copies of copies, and sometimes in the course of that transmission, mistakes entered into the transmission process. Someone forgets to dot an I or cross a T. Someone spells a word wrong. Someone writes a word twice. Sometimes explanatory notes find their way into the main text. These are small errors, or small mistakes I should say, that do not constitute errors. They do not, uh, they do not in any way impinge upon the truth that is communicated by these books. So it is important for us to recognize that there are mistakes even if they're not errors. And I'll come back to this point at the end of this talk as I consider a couple of case studies. Finally, as this quote mentions, we have confidence that this teaches this set of books that we call the Bible teaches us the truth, the truth that God wants us to know for the sake of our salvation. On the other half of the coin, because we believe that there is a human author of the Bible, we believe a, a few other things about the Bible, that it is comprised of genuine human language, Genuine authors writing in the time period they lived, they use the certain uh, conventions, literary conventions of their time period. Thus, in order for us to understand it, we have to understand these literary genres and conventions of, say, the 10th century BC or the 1st century AD. We have to understand what these human authors were trying to write if we are to interpret them properly. Finally, we also believe, as I've said a few times, that these human authors use their intellect and their will creatively to put down this truth in the best way that they see fit. They are truly authors, and so we can be edified by the beauty, by the creativity, by even, say, the entertainment factor of some of these books because they are truly genius types of writing from the ancient world. As I have alluded to here, there are a couple of implications, given what we believe about the Bible then, as to how we approach it, how we read it, how we engage with it. Since God speaks in sacred scripture through men in a human fashion, the interpreter of sacred scripture should carefully investigate what meaning the sacred writers really intended and what God wanted to manifest by means of their words. Again, we have to take into account the genre, the literary form in which these authors were writing. A couple of examples of this can be helpful. A few case studies. If you were to go to Exodus 14-15, to 15, this is where the Israelites are all being led out of captivity after the pharaoh has been struck by a series of plagues. He says that they can go. They're all uh, going into a uh, big caravan, into a military formation to get out of Egypt, to go back to the Promised Land. And in this account, the author is quite careful to note that there are 600,000 men, not counting women and children, who are in this caravan. Now, you can read a lot of scholarly articles about how they were probably, or almost assuredly, there weren't 600,000 men in all of Egypt at this time. There weren't 600,000 men in all of Egypt and the eastern Mediterranean Palestine. There weren't that many people at this time. So, concludes many rationalist readers of the Bible, that's an error. This isn't reliable. It's not trustworthy. It's just a bunch of myths that are made up. But it's important to recognize that there are, in fact, literary conventions going on here. And they're not all that foreign to us, I wouldn't say. So, for example, if you've ever exaggerated or used hyperbole, to get your point across. I recently was speaking with my niece about working at this uh, uh, volunteer thing uh, at the church that she was at, and I asked how it went. And she was complaining, because right before they were about to close up, um, they were, I think, selling some kind of pizza or something at this church fair. She said right before they closed up, a million people came up to try to, get peop- to try to get their pizza right at the end. So she had to stay later because a million people came. Now, I could have said, aha, you're lying. You are in error. There were surely not a million people there, and I know that because there were only 60,000 people that came uh, you know, through the whole weekend. That's not the point. She was obviously exaggerating and using hyperbole in her speech to get her point across. The same can be said of these biblical authors quite frequently. They will exaggerate numbers to get their point across. Numbers also frequently have symbolic value. So there are these types of literary conventions that we need to pay attention to. Another case study, and one that I like to talk about, I'm more interested in, uh, is Genesis 1. I've had a lot of uh, occasion to talk to different scientists and um, with the TI, we do a lot of work between faith and reason, science and faith, these types of things. This is a sticking point for a lot of people and particularly in the American context because there are people who want to read Genesis 1 literally, that the earth is only whatever it is, 6,000 years old, that it really was created in seven days and so forth. This account, however, is a highly symbolic account that is interacting with Babylonian myth. So, the people who wrote this, the the Israelites who wrote this, were living in Babylon at this time. And they had to go out into the cities of Babylon and hear how great the god Marduk was. How great Babylonian power and supremacy was. So, what is this author trying to get his people to see and to know about God? What is the saving truth that he's trying to communicate? Most basically, it's just this. God is the origin of everything. God is the origin of everything. Well, some of the Babylonians might have said, what about the sun? The sun is all-powerful. The sun, Shemesh, is a god who creates and gives life to the earth. No, the sun was created by God. God, Yahweh, is the origin of everything. That's why, if you've ever read Genesis 1, you notice that God creates light before the sun. Going all the way back to Voltaire and some of the rationalists, the Bible is idiotic because it says that the light was created before the sun. When any scientist knows that light comes from the sun. So he's not trying to say that literally God created light before the sun, but rather that sun is not the cause of the light. The sun is not the cause of everything. It's rather God. Later on in Genesis 1, The sun isn't even named. It's the great light that's put over charge of all the other lights. And there's a lesser light. So the sun and the moon are not even named. They're not given names. And the reason for that, again, is because these were gods in the Babylonian pantheon. And this author wants to demote them to say that they're not gods. There's nothing special about them. They were appointed simply by the one true God to rule over the night and the day, so to speak. So that's one example of something from Genesis 1 that we can better understand if we understand what the author's intention is. Finally, we get this seven days and this pattern of sevens coming through. That got There are seven times where God says, let there be and then there was god continually says let there be light let there let all the waters be gathered into one place and so on and so forth and the narrator says that this happens exactly as god commands so creation happens at the word of god and it's in perfect accordance with what god commands if you read the babylonian creation myths and actually any creation myth in the entire ancient Near East, the entire ancient world, you know how things are created. It's that gods fight each other and kill each other. And then the world is created out of the corpse of a god. That was one of the chief myths in the Babylonian world. The hide of a god monster was peeled off and then spread out, and that's the sky. Her corpse is the earth, and then another dragon was slain, and the blood from that dragon is poured out on this clay, and that's what human beings are. They're the descendants of this monster. Dragon blood is that which animates them. It's meant to explain why human beings are so violent and why the world is so chaotic and so forth, but in that context, consider what Genesis 1 is saying. No. God created serenely and without any effort, and God created an ordered world. He created every domain of the cosmos, and he created the beings that are supposed to inhabit those domains. It's orderly, it's serene, it's peaceful. That is a far cry from the Babylonian worldview. And it's that kind of historical work and historical reading that can help us to appreciate with greater subtlety the message that is being communicated through Genesis 1. And if we have all of that in the background, then when we move to John, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, we get this ability to read Genesis 1 and John 1 together, that God's Word, Jesus Christ, is coming into the world to reorder, to recreate, to produce again this serene peace and order and justice in the world. That is part of John's message there. Finally, since I'm talking about the Gospels, it's helpful and important to remember that these two are a particular genre. The Gospels are modeled on a kind of biography, a bioi, in the Roman world. And in these biographies, they feature a protagonist who is fully developed as a character who is meant to exemplify and illustrate some value, some virtue. So Christ in the Gospels is exemplifying the value and the virtue of what it is to live according to the grace of God, the grace of the gospel. Christ illustrates what is possible when we live in union with God. And that's an important point for us to consider, again, because in the history of the rationalist modes of interpretation, they doubt everything about these gospels because they were not written as historical records in the way that rationalists, people would like them to have been written. So you get a lot of interesting studies of the life of Christ that seek to take out, pick and choose historical data points. Look at how Luke differs from Matthew and so on and so forth. And you actually get some pretty entertaining lives lives of Christ. One of my favorite ones was by an Italian living in the 17th or 18th century who said, that it was a clear matter of fact that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross. That what happened was Luke, because we all know that Luke was a doctor, Luke gave him a special vial of painkillers before he was crucified. And then Luke snuck off and after The Romans thought that Jesus died because his respiration got really low and they couldn't detect a heartbeat because of the potion that Luke had given him. They took him down from the cross and buried him. And then Luke came by later and then had a special kind of herb concoction with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and they woke him up later on. So there's a rational explanation for all of this. Jesus Christ really didn't die, really wasn't raised but it's, it's perfectly sensible. And if we just take this little detail and that little detail, and then fill in everything else with rationalist speculation, then we have a true life of Christ. My point in bringing all of that up is that this is a completely foreign and alien approach to that which we would be engaged in in the Catholic tradition. And it completely ignores the fact that these Gospels are, in fact, bioi, that they are a particular genre of Roman biography. It doesn't interpret them as they are intended to be interpreted. So that is what explains some of the discrepancies between the different accounts in the Gospels, is by reading them and interpreting them against this background. So those are just a few of the case studies that I include in how we might read the scripture in accord with its intention by the human authors. But then also as Catholics who are indeed convinced that this does communicate the saving truth of God. That this is still a fitting instrument by which God communicates truth to us and can continue to inform the lives of believers who read it. That is the essence of what inspiration and authorship of the Bible is in the Catholic tradition. Uh, and so I will leave it there and turn to any questions that you might have at this point.
2: So you just have to yell.
1: Okay, so um, is this the... Yeah, I think so. Okay. So the question is, what the discrepancy in number of of books in the Old Testament between the Catholic and the Protestant Bible. So there's something, one thing I I didn't mention here is the um, reception and canonization, it's called. So the process by which these books were recognized as being inspired in the course of history. Okay. So... The Catholic uh, perspective on this is that the Holy Spirit was at work in this process as well. There was uh, there were certain followers of the apostles like Saint Polycarp who were inspired, given a charism of the Holy Spirit, to recognize and make a decision about this gospel or that gospel that this is definitely inspired, and that's accompanied also by the recognition of the faithful in general. That this is a an inspired gospel that communicates divine truth, and that one isn't. That's why John and the, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were accepted all over the entire Christian church by 90 AD. So very shortly after they were written. But then, like the Gospel of Thomas was rejected because people were just, they understood that this doesn't truly communicate who Christ was or what he actually did. And that was actually written later, uh, that, that particular gospel. Okay, so that process then um, got, uh, was a little bit messy with, a, with respect to a few books, um, like the Song of Songs, if you've ever read that book, which is an extended love poem between a, a man and his bride. Uh, and the question was, well, how can this possibly be scripture? What does it teach us? Um, the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Sirach, there were certain of these books that had questions on them. And so it wasn't until um, the fourth century uh, with Augustine of Hippo and some of the church councils that the, those decisions were finally made definitively and lists were actually written out. Um, the other thing that got confusing for people is that in a manuscript, uh, in a book, you would have some non biblical books included along with biblical books. So, like, there's something called The Shepherd of Hermas, uh, for example. So, there were good books about living a good Christian life, but they weren't inspired. So, it, it was a messy process through the fourth century, but then it was regularized and standardized. Uh, as I understand it, then, one of the principles by which Luther uh, wanted to um, sort of reform the church was also with regard to the scripture making a determination uh, based on the principle for the Old Testament of Hebraica Veritas, which was uh, truth in the Hebrew. Uh, that was a, a saying that was popularized by St. Jerome, um, but He basically wanted to say that if it wasn't composed in Hebrew in the Old Testament, then it should be set aside. So that was one of the things. So there are books in the Old Testament, like the Book of Wisdom, uh, that was composed in in Greek. Um, And then the Book of Sirach, which is one of my favorite books, was uh, transmitted in Greek for many centuries. The curious thing about the book of Sirach is that it was actually composed in Hebrew. The Hebrew was lost. They transmitted it to Greek for many centuries. And then in 1897, the Hebrew was discovered again. So uh, that's, a, that's one of those books as well. So uh, that's kind of how those, those ones fell out.
2: Yeah. I have a You mentioned that Genesis 1 yeah. was through symbolism. Yes, Uh, So, is it all true,
1: or is it all symbolism? Uh, So, the question is, uh, is Genesis 1 all symbolism, or is it all true? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I would say both. Uh, It's highly symbolic, and it is most certainly true. Uh, So, symbols are a way that human beings communicate truth, uh, and it's certainly a way that God communicates truth. So what it is not is it is not a uh, an account of the material origins of the universe and of human beings. So um, if, I, if I could also include Genesis 2 here if you'll permit me. Human beings I don't think are really made out of clay. It, you know, like that's not, it wasn't really that they were formed into clay figurines and then breathed into. Like, that's not the uh, meant to be a material account of the origins of human beings. But it certainly is something that communicates truth because that verb in Hebrew, forming, it's, it's tactile and, and it shows how much God cared, how careful he was in creating human beings. And the life breath is the same word Um, for the spirit of God. So the spirit of God resides in human beings, and that image of God breathing into the nostrils of human beings to animate them shows a close connection between human beings and God. Uh, So it is symbolic, but it expresses the depth of the relationship and the truth between God and human beings.
2: Yeah. So uh, give back on, on literary style or literary yep. form in the Bible, um uh the the wisdom books like you say, uh and college. So uh, recently I've had a lot of discussion online uh, online, a lot of and uh, Unitarianism is more, right? because they, they take a hyperliteral understanding of the life. Mm-hmm. How has the church historically and you probably know I'm going with this? How has the church historically tie the, the proper exegesis stuff? Proverbs
1: 8. Okay, so the the question regards wisdom literature, uh, and so there there have been recent uh, debates, I guess. Yes, uh, yes, uh, okay, okay, all right. About the kind of Arianism uh, uh, within some of the, the scripture, and particularly with regard to Proverbs eight. So Proverbs 8 uh, 22 to thirty one. Yeah, twenty two to thirty
2: one. Yeah.
1: So so that is a, a poem. Uh, that uh, I, the way that I would describe it is it is a poem that uses a device called personification to describe wisdom, so wisdom is described as a woman, and the woman uh, wisdom is uh, seated before god she 's the first thing that 's created she 's present when God creates the world um, she 's depicted as uh depending upon how you want to translate as delighting or, or being a master worker kind of architect or a, a kind of at play before God. So she, um, the, the way that I would handle this um, is it's, it's actually remarkably close to some of the hymns and the poems describing Isis. Uh, that is I-S-I-S, uh, Egyptian goddess, um, and she uh, has this kind of wisdom connotation in Egyptian. So it's borrowing that to describe this quality of wisdom with which God creates, and the quality of wisdom that is in inhere[s] within all of creation. And that poem clearly links wisdom. There's She's a bridge. It's linking creation with her, and then her with God. So it's she's being described in this personified way in order to describe how through wisdom human beings in their knowledge and in their minds and their higher faculties can be united with god and it's it's highly symbolic um, so yeah yeah i think the, aren't
2: the area trying to say that was actually jesus christ right because oh he was made in the beginning right right i right. yeah so, so so to bring how would you push back against yeah, the so, that yeah so jesus created
1: right so then, the the point is that there's a longer-standing tradition that Proverbs eight uh, and then Sirach twenty-four point to prefigure Jesus Christ because it, Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate. And they use
2: uh 1, Corinthians one two four, I guess, to say to try to cross-reference that, that Proverbs eight twenty-two.
1: Yeah, so which which picks this up. So what what I would say about it is that. Um, it's true that these prefigure Jesus Christ and uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, what was it, was it 124? Yeah, uh, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Um, that, that, right, that this is, this is true to say that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. It, absolutely. But what it is trying to do is it's trying to then read Proverbs 8 literally uh, as in the first instance referring to Christ, um, whereas what I'm saying is that the person who wrote Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, lived in probably, let's say, roughly around 1000 to 800 BC, and then that's how it kind of came into Proverbs, and that that was intended to be a personification poem. This human author did not have uh, any no- direct, explicit knowledge of Jesus Christ. But then in God's providence, it's taken up and used, uh, it, it points forward to Jesus Christ. So one great quote by uh, Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, God rest him, from a work that he did called The, the, the Word of the Lord, this thing that he wrote, is that, The Holy Spirit, who gives life to the church, enables us to interpret the scriptures authoritatively. Um, No, that's not the one I want. Excuse me. Sorry. The Holy Spirit, principal author of the Bible, can guide human authors in the choice of expressions in such a way that the human author will express a, a truth the fullest depths of which he himself will not understand or perceive. So, in other words, a lot of what these, it's the principle that God can re employ things that these human authors have written in a new way to refer to in a more fuller way to Jesus Christ. And that's part of the unity of the Bible that we believe in.
2: Yes? Yeah.
1: So the question um, is what sense does it make for us to, to need tradition? Uh, to need something in addition to the Bible, why not just sola scriptura? Um, so the answer, uh, where I would locate this, um, this is going to the, this document, the Word of God again, is that the Word of God is not coterminous with or identical with the Bible. The Word of God is bigger and more expansive than the Bible than the scripture so the sacred deposit of the Word of God uh, the sacred truth that God wants us to know it, it it it's subsistent in the tradition the church in addition to the scripture um, and then there's a certain sense in which you the, the Tradition kind of precedes, if I could put it that way. Um, What I'm talking about specifically is that the the apostles were engaged in handing on the truth, the word of God, preaching orally, Um, and then it's only in the context of their preaching, of their uh, teaching. That is to say, they're already—they already have this authority in which um, the written message of salvation is received. So that framework precedes the actual writing down of the scripture. So, if you look at it from the day that Christ was crucified and ascended to heaven, and then the Pentecost sends forth. Uh, the apostles to do the preaching to to hand on christ's ministry so from like let's say thirty five to all the way to um, seventy there's thirty five years where how how is this truth actually being transmitted it's It is being transmitted independently from the scripture um, there, there's a separate question then about the interpretation uh, and the, the, the way that the interpretation occurs. And uh, what I would say about that is, again, we are, we believe that we're an ecclesial body united in Christ, that we receive this together as a community, but also read it and interpret it together as a community. So it's not me sitting by myself and coming up with new and fun ways to interpret the scripture, but I'm supposed to be interpreting it with a, an eye on the tradition. Like what, what did Jerome say about it? What did Augustine say about it? What did um, uh, what Coenomenus of Caesarea say about it? Uh, th- these different things. Um, so I'm supposed to be taking into account the tradition, but then also uh, the, this ecclesial context. Which is different from so I go to professional guild types of conferences and there the emphasis is like what's original, what's new, what how can you read this in a novel way and so publish something that's original and get tenure because that's what it's all about. So it's I mean, so that's kind of the if you want to like highlight the two ends of the spectrum.
2: more of no else I guess we can go back. <laughs> yeah, you just go back, that's fine. Noah's uh, uh, Ark to even Exodus as a whole, this didn't, I'm arguing just, Yeah.
1: I've discussed all the time and I'm trying to attack. Okay. as if I were an Elf. So, 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 so uh, yeah, uh, how does hyperbole work with narrative, essentially, uh, narrative recountings? Um, and if I may, um, if I could insert this in there, um what's the difference between history uh and or does history require uh complete accuracy in detail uh does biblical history require complete accuracy in detail and so this is another area of interest of mine actually is that one of the and I so my personal uh assessment is that there's not enough space for um, non-historical narrative in our understanding of the Old Testament. In other words, I think there is more non-historical narrative in the Old Testament than people typically usually would assume. So... um, what I'm thinking about, so you're talking about the primeval history there of one, to, I mean, there's so much interaction with myth and, and other types of and I don't mean that like myth isn't true, but like it's the type of thing that Genesis one was doing and sort of recounting our origins to present to the present day, present human experience. How do people get to be where they are? How did this alienation from God happen? and these types of things. So um, the symbolic, I think, plays a larger role in those types of texts. And then to your point about the Exodus, uh, that seems, does seem to be a little bit more, um, let's say, historically focused. Uh, but the theological point where the hyperbole would kind of come in goes all the way back to Genesis 12 Fifteen and seventeen, which are the places where God recounts, uh, or, or God calls Abram, and then Abraham and offers him a promise, and that's the that's the tension. Because I mean, if you think about God's promises and you think that God's going to fulfill all of His promises, right? Because God's true and faithful. But at the end of Abram's life, or Abraham's life, how many kids does he have? He's got two. I mean, well, he's got a few more, actually. I should say, because, but there are two main ones, and one of them is alienated from him. So there's this narrative tension that's going on. How is God going to make good on these promises, and when is God going to do that, and how you know how is this all going to work out? So when you have this giant uh, cadre of They've they become so numerous in Egypt. That's the beginning of the fulfillment of the divine promise that God will make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sands on the shore of the sea. 600,000 is innumerable, basically, at that time. So like that's part of how it fits in. And then finally, there's this big swath of historical material between Deuteronomy and 2 Kings. And part of the point of that is to explain how it happened that they find themselves in the exile, the author though had access to books like the the books of the kings i mean and the chronicles of of Israel, so he's saying like almost citing his sources and taking material out of there and it, it makes it sound very much like a history it is close to i mean it is meant to be a history, but it's meant to be a history where God is acting in the history, and uh, it's giving a theological, very theological bent, if you want, I don't know that that's the right word, but a, a shape to the history. So that might then be a reason why you don't really care if you got it right that there were this many, or what year of the king's reign it was, or... What order the kings came in, even like which, so there are these little mistakes like that. But the, the larger point, the more important point, is a theological one, even though it's history and biblical history. Um,
2: so t- since you uh, alluded to it in, in uh, Ishmael, so we'll, we'll talk about Islam. yeah. Okay, they claim since you know, the topic of the discussion, of biblical liability, the claim that the Bible is corrupt. What is your best argument to, to combat based on standing that the Bible is corrupt, especially the New Testament? Right, they, they say we're Paulians and all this type of stuff. So, how would
1: you, how do you refute that? So, the question is, um, how to refute the argument that the Bible, that been the Bible has been corrupted uh, by put forward by Islam? I don't know that there is like. Uh, Straightforward apologetic type of argument because if I mean, if you're saying so, put it this way: if you don't, if you don't believe in biblical inspiration, then uh, that's kind of one of those first principles that's tough to really get around. Um, So there are, again, I mentioned this: there are professional biblical scholars who don't think that Paul is to be trusted, and they read him with a great deal of skepticism because. Why should you trust some guy writing in the first century, you know? Um, sometimes even Catholic biblical scholars say things like this, which is mystifying to me, but that's, it's how it works. But no, so like the the main thing is you reaffirm that Paul, okay, on the way to Damascus, I mean, there is some type of, I, you can, this might be more or less convincing, but the, I mean the fact of the matter is that these these accounts of this conversion exist. That Saul of Tarsus is a verified historical figure who was converted and then was killed in Rome, and I mean, why else would a guy do that? I mean, like, I don't know, I mean, I guess he could have gone insane, I mean, if that's the way you want to go. But I mean, there's obviously something that happened in this man's life, Uh, and he became one of the most prodigious preachers of the gospel. So that's kind of supernatural in my opinion. And he, I mean, he put his money where his mouth was, so to speak. I mean, he suffered like Christ suffered. He worked for his, I mean, like everything was like he, you know, he, those who do not work should not eat. It's an ominous saying that every Dominican shudders at, you know, like we gotta, if we want to eat, man, we gotta get out there. So like, uh, those things are, I mean, he really did live this. So um, those types of things, I mean, if you're talking about just Paul in particular. Um, and then getting into his particular uh, understanding of the, the the allegorical interpretation in Galatians of Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, and um, uh Isaac, like, it, it's, um, it's, I think some of it's tied to that because Ishmael does not come off as being very uh, attractive in his interpretation because he's a son of, of slavery and all that. So that might have something to do with it, but I don't know that that would actually convince anybody of, I think it really comes down to that idea. Yeah, that yeah,
2: yeah. So, you mentioned in Genesis there's a lot of Cinebology. I don't disagree with I think you shouldn't read Genesis it. like we should science, mm-hmm. but I guess the question is where will we draw the line between these events actually happening in Genesis versus Genesis to college, right? so I'll have a, this? So, all i of the atheists might go over and say, well, Adam and Eve, how can you believe Adam and Eve really exist in the that was a right? we fall yeah. in? Um, when you say Adam and Eve were sort of you mentioned before that there are a lot of things you can just need to spell together that poetic and symbolic than you actually think. So, do you think Adam and Eve
1: actually Well, so one of the things to note about their names is their their names are symbolic. Uh, so, like uh, Adam is uh, the one who is taken from the ground. So, Adam, Adama, the word for the earth. Like, so in English, it would sound very peculiar, so I don't advocate translating it this way, but it would be the earthling was created from the earth. Uh, that, that would be the kind of level of the play on words that's going on. So, and if you look at it, uh, you read that um, in a lot of translations, it's the man and the woman uh, in Genesis 2. Like, they don't translate Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, but the man and the woman. And the reason for that is because the those proper names don't actually come into play until Genesis 3 and after the fall. Um, so there is a level of what I'm calling symbolism, but it's like a, a word play kind of a thing. Um, and later on in subsequent books in the Bible, the... Uh, the way that Adam, he's used as um, a stand-in for all of humanity. So um, that's the reason for this kind of word play is the fact that Adam is the every man, so to speak. So that which happens to Adam happens to everyone. Uh, you know. So um, I guess what I'm kind of driving at with that particular question is that there's kind of a both and quality to it that there is a symbolic dimension but that there were first human beings like okay um and then subsequently this is where it's important to uh read things ecclesially by which i mean that there are some directives given in the um interpret like authentic interpretation of the church uh there are certain documents where we're guided that you, um, Humani Generis is one of them, but it's, it's to say that it's, uh, it's important to affirm that we have first parents, one, that there were, there were first parents that were created. And then two, with regard specifically to the teachings on original sin, that, uh, with the fall, that we do believe in a doctrine of original sin, where it's not just a matter of children imitating their parents, but that there is a spiritual malady that is passed on uh through generations, so this would be um, uh in different uh in different formulations it's not um Propagation, not imitation, that we, we share in original sin by propagation and not imitation. It's not to say that original sin is a biological reality, but it is a spiritual state that we share in uh, that can only be remo- removed in baptism. So given that doctrine and the dogma there, uh, we're encouraged and guided to uh, believing that there were first parents. Um There's a Dominican, Filipino-Dominican by the name of Father Nicanor Ostriaco, who has written extensively about how this works with and correlates with evolutionary biology. And in fact, that uh, we can still hold for evolution, but that there is a moment in that evolution when ensolment occurred, and that tracks with linguistic or language development in being able to to have abstract thought and language development. So so you get in a lot of this cross-pollination with biblical interpretation and, and science on this question. So in sum, I would just say that we, uh, there is actually some, as I understand it, uh, scientific backing to suggest that there we have first parents. Um, Adam and Eve were not like their names, uh, that's not what the author is intending to convey, but that there is this Eve means life, you know, it, it's, uh, and Adam, again, as I said, is like birthling, whatever. Yeah.
2: How does that tie into the genealogies? So I feel like genealogies are pretty central, especially through the Gospels and throughout the Old Testament. So if Adam and Eve are symbolic, how does that tie into. I feel like genealogies are central to the
1: story? Sure. So the when I'm talking about symbolic it's in the sense of the the name uh, what I'm talking about there is the and this is what I mean by both and there's a symbolic dimension to the name the name being a throwback to how Genesis two says that the man was created, that is from the earth. So that's the the sense of it, that word then becomes used for all of humankind, uh, and it actually is a synonym for humanity, uh, so that's kind of what I'm I'm getting at there, that um, all of humankind is present there in the man at the rejection of God's command in the garden there, okay, The the genealogy, then, when you're... The genealogies of the first 11 chapters of Genesis are, um, again, it's a drama that gets played out uh, that Adam has, uh, you know, the whole story of Cain and Abel and then has to restart with Seth. There are two lines, then, that get traced the descendants of, um, uh, of Cain and then the descendants of Seth. And all of the good, if I can just put it that broadly, uh, figures come through the lineage of Seth. And then all of the questionable figures come through the lineage. And it, it oscillates back and forth in these, in these, um, these different lineages. Then you come to Genesis 6, which it says that all the thoughts of every human being were nothing but evil all the time, leading to the flood and then the recreation. And then there's again the resumption of Seth's line, which then has uh, three, uh, Seth, Ham, and Japheth, uh, or um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there's one of these lines that will end up becoming the line out of which uh, Abram and then Israel is uh, blossoms. The other two populate the other corners of the earth, so they're not as good. Um, so the, the lineage in those chapters, that is to say Genesis 1-11, to explains the primordial spread of human evil... And then also after the flood, the spread of human beings in the world the, and how um, the modern nations that the people knew at the time descend from these patriarchs that ultimately all go back to the, the pre-flood, uh, to Noah and then pre-flood to, to uh, Abram. Then when you're talking about the genealogies and the gospels, you're talking about something different a little bit, which is to say, um, 14 of those generations uh, right? I mean, they're, they're the sets of 14. So you get a little bit of that. But what you're talking about is the fulfillment of Davidic promises there. So the generations continue to be traced uh, to King David from Abram uh, from Abraham, and then um, after King David in the exile. Uh, so there's like a periodization of history uh, in the in the concept of these generations that there was an epoch that's primordial uh, before the Flood, after the Flood, then up to David, then after David. So, uh, so, so after the, the exile. So that means the first 14 generations from Adam to David are not necess- don't necessarily have to be historical? Um, I mean, it wouldn't be... I wouldn't say that it uh, interferes with the fulfillment of the Davidic promise by Christ. Uh, There's no proof that it doesn't, or that, I mean, it's sort of, um, whether, yeah, I mean, whether they're really, I I mean, yeah, like, um, I guess how would you put this, whether the people who inhabit the eastern part of the uh, Babylonian and Persian Empire really all descended from the common ancestor of, of Noah, or one of the three sons of Noah. Um, again, I don't know, I don't know how the, the evolutionary evidence bears out in comparison with the, just the straight father-son relationship. I think there is some evidence that there is an admixture of uh, Neanderthal DNA on the one hand and then Denisovan DNA on the other hand. So that there is a, a common ancestor but that there are different uh, inputs, say, uh, the reason why my DNA is very different from Father Nikinor Astriaco's or uh, different people, you know, Accounting for some of that change. So um
2: I guess that's sort of yeah. the So yeah. I'm assuming uh, the Catholic Church uh, takes the evolutionary stance?
1: Yeah, so it's it's that it's reasonable so, and yeah.
2: So would that mean like God made Neanderthals and every other one in his image? Or would or is every stage of that human progression in his image or
1: it, it it's the position that the human what makes a human uh being is a rational soul so a rational a rational animal is a human being so rationality they progress,
2: they progress. So,
1: so yeah so we we also would say that there's the need for apt matter to receive this rational intellect so for example If you have a slime mold, uh, that's not apt matter uh, to receive the rational soul because there's no organ for, you know, abstract thought and so on and so forth, communication, that would be like part of the idea here. So that evolution is a process that is natural that comes to a certain point uh, and that there is a, in in time then, uh, divine action to ensoul or give this rational soul to this creature that enables, uh, according this is an opinion of Father Astriaco, that this correlates with or, or uh, enables abstract thought and language speech.
2: Um, yeah, you spoke a little bit um, about the necessity for uh, knowledge of literary forms. Um, Sort of, yeah, contemporary literary forms that the authors were using, mm-hmm. um, and I guess that makes sense. I have a question though about sort of like our our discovery of that is somewhat recent, right? And so, like thinking about interpretation, like there seems, seems to be like a gap of like people maybe weren't thinking about those forms, right? Mm-hmm. And how does that kind of um I guess speak to the need for like a sort of ecclesial interpreting body as opposed to being just a personal.
1: Sure. Uh,
2: yeah, like me in the text. Um,
1: so if I could sum up the just the question would be: how do we um, account for the recent developments in knowledge and understanding about the historical uh, genres? forms, etc., context, historical context of the texts, and how do we incorporate that while still accounting for the tradition? For a lot of people, like for centuries, no one really cared about uh, form criticism or, you know, archaeology. That wasn't a thing. Exactly. Uh, right. So I think one principle that's helpful is there's this document called uh, Providence of God, Providentissimus Deus, uh, that was uh, where the Holy Father actually identifies the discovery and development of these uh, supporting sciences like archaeology and language and these literary forms. He actually says that these are acts of divine providence, that we know these things now. And I think he sees that as a uh, kind of counter uh, a pushback against modernism and rationalism that actually helps us to point out these types of errors in rationalist responses uh, by which supposedly enlightened rational people are interpreting the Bible according to their own like 19th century philosophical modes and uh, whether in England or Germany or whatever. So that's part of it. Another part of it is to say that it's important, as Pope Benedict says, not to reduce ourselves to purely or solely historical analysis, uh, as though you know everything that you need to know about the Bible and biblical text by historical analysis. That always needs to be in service to a kind of transcendent pursuit of the meaning of the truth of the text. Um, and then... It's hard to do, but it is important to just try to steep oneself in the tradition of the church and you know kind of do that uh, I like to borrow a term from Saint Jerome it's called escasis uh, asceticism a way of life you put your whole life into reading the Bible knowing more about it you steep yourself in the tradition the whole way that you live is around that scriptural text and then so it's not just a matter of going to your desk and, you know, pumping out an article or whatever is, I, I keep on doing that, sorry. I talk with my hands a lot, I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, so that, that's kind of part of the answer. Um, yeah, so if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So, um, as Catholics, the know, about
2: some local evangelical houses to be out there. Um, and it's kind of tied to the question I have, which is if there is death fires to the fall, if evolution is also true? because Constantinople 3 says, the Holy of Commandments medical set up, where says, it applies to the open up to the divine grace, for the full knowledge and contribution of the living today. But as the author of evil, who going to say, the beginning, the build of himself of the able serpent, and by it brought the poison of death upon the human race, the and not resisted to the like manner now, having found solutions for looking after the will, as actively employed them raising up the whole verse of blocks, so one known in the open up to the age, so it's not going to be a change of the cross, right? It says that Satan brought the poison of the human race, right. which would be consistent with yes, how in right. the world, so. But if evolution is true, that means that obviously people had to die prior to the figures of Adam and Eve creating to the world. So that would still mean that Neanderthals or whoever evolved before humans, Adam and Eve, they still had to die. Yeah. But yet, the Evan Council says that death enters the world.
1: Okay, so the fact that Neanderthals died, Neanderthals aren't human beings yet, so the fact that they died would be like dinosaurs dying, or I mean, they're closer up obviously to human right? beings. So then if we just, if you go with me just to say um, that there were ensouled human beings uh, at whatever point, so you have your first two human beings Uh, the matter had evolved to this point, then received the form or the the rational soul by God. So you have your two human beings, whatever. Um, So they would have had to have died, right? Well, according to nature, yes. However, in the uh, Western Latin tradition of theology, Articulated by the Cappadocian Fathers. And then uh, later on developed uh, also by St. Thomas Aquinas. There are something called the preternatural gifts. And the preternatural gifts are special gifts of grace. Given to the first human beings. Uh, Thomas Aquinas just says Adam and Eve in the garden. This is uh, the the fact that they're impassable. So they don't experience bodily pain, uh, that they are, uh, they have a gift of knowledge, everything that they need to know about their environment, they're just given, they don't have to learn it, so they have that, and then they have immortality, meaning God, by a special gift, prevents them from dying, this is a supernatural gift, it's not natural, so this is, these are called the preternatural gifts, then, by the inexplicable decision, to uh, choose against God, not to obey. This is a rejection of all of these preternatural gifts, not only for themselves, but also for human nature. So it's, that's how it's usually uh, spoken about in the Western, the Latin Catholic tradition. So that it's not um, by nature, that human beings by nature were never immortal. And that tracks with the text, because if you look at Genesis 3, one of the punishments is that they're ejected from the garden, and then you have your spinning swords of fire, the seraphim, uh, so that they can't get back in, because God says, lest they uh, be able to have access to the tree of life and, and continue to live. So there's this understanding in the text that the principle of life is external to those human beings. That is to say, that they need to have access to the tree of life, which is to be in the garden with God. It's a that's a, I think, a symbolic way of speaking about that ongoing relationship with God that gives life. So, that's um, I think that that does actually track with the text of what Genesis is saying. Yeah. We have time just for one more question, and then after a while
2: Yep. Um, I've uh, listened to Dr. Bart Ehrman a lot He's, uh, the Bart Ehrman? Yep. He, he says that um, this is about reliability of uh, yep. scripture. Going back to the point of the talk. Um, so, they're early manuscripts of Mark, like, or the last 12 verses of Mark, where uh, Christ says, you know, handle snakes, drink poison. We're mm-hmm. uh, missing. From early, from from the earliest Yep. And then there, they have a lot of manuscripts that are missing. Um, Christ saying, "Father, forgive them." Not, not what they do. Okay. And so when you hear stuff like that, maybe they're not critical Christianity at a whole, but they seem like big parts yeah. that are missing, and it makes the question reliability of the verses that we have. Um, so my question is, does that make them unreliable?
1: Right, okay, so the question is just about how some manuscripts do have sections missing. Uh, Does that make them unreliable? Uh, I would say yes, there are unreliable manuscripts. It highlights the importance of having good manuscripts. One of the biggest debate, well, so this is an interesting point too. some of the early apologetic debates between, like, say, Arians and the Catholics or Docetists and Catholics or, you know, these different groups is that, or now I'm not thinking of the name, it starts the name, Marcian. yeah, Marcionism, thank you. So Marcionism is that they accuse each other of tampering with the manuscripts. And Marcionists apparently did this quite freely. So it highlighted this to your earlier question. That's one of the key things why um, the tradition was so necessary to safeguard. And people would, you could trust, if you have Polycarp in front of you, you can trust him that he's going to tell you the truth and preach the gospel to you. If you have these bishops, you have, you can trust them because it's a person, but if you just have a text that's written down, you, how do you know that someone didn't mess with it? And that happened, so that's true. So that highlights the importance of the total ecclesial reception of the thing. Okay, and then we develop very early on monasteries in the desert, uh, Saint Catherine's Monastery, uh, Sinaiticus. There's a one of the earliest fourth century full manuscript of the whole Bible. It's called Sinaiticus because it was found on Mount Sinai. Uh, The monks were the ones who were copying these things, living their whole, and like focused on meticulously copying these things out. So those were the reliable manuscripts that you have, like the exemplar copy. So everyone could understand and know that this big, beautiful looking copy is the one that we trust the most. And these other more hastily written ones are the ones that are like less reliable. But if you have a question, you can go consult the main one again. And that so th- there was a kind of science of manuscript study that developed over time. And that's what we do today is text criticism. There are thousands of manuscripts, and it's tedious work. And that's you, you, you come up with these critical editions to try to get the most reliable uh, text that you can. Fourth, yeah. Vaticanus is the other one that's a big one. All right. Thank you for all those
0: questions. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thamisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.